Well, good morning, everyone. It is so very, very good uh, to see each and every one of you. I want to welcome you um, again to Throwback Sunday. And uh, as you heard, uh, this is not our our normal uh, service, but I hope that you've really enjoyed as we have uh, gone back in time and uh, we have uh, sung together again some amazing hymns uh, of the faith that mean so very, very much to us. And I, I do have to say, you guys look pretty amazing, right? Thank you for uh, dressing up. I hope you like this. Um, don't get to see this too often. I was thinking earlier this morning, someone asked me, and I, I realized it's been a, almost a quarter of a century since I've actually preached a, a, an official uh, Sunday sermon, you know, while um, I'm wearing a suit. So I hope you appreciate the effort, right? <laughs> and, and if you're wondering too, um, if you're wondering too, uh, this right here is actually a throwback to when I first came to Southwinds. In 2003, I had a uh, I had a goatee then, um, didn't have as much gray as it does now. This is what you people have done to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're having a good time uh, during this fall, remembering God's goodness to us as a church uh, over the last 75 years. And we hope that today uh, will be something uh, of that uh, for all of us together. Um, you know, what I'm talking about today kind of came out of what we're doing today. And uh, some of you who maybe didn't grow up in church may not really be aware of this, but people actually used to wear uh, every Sunday what people called their, their Sunday best. And uh, they dressed up back then because that, they felt that that was a way that they could express the giving of their best to God. Now, we live in a very different culture, a much more casual culture today, and we express value in different ways. And to be real honest, there's nothing particularly biblical about dressing up, but it got me to thinking about something. And it got me to thinking about something that's actually is biblical, and that is giving God our best. See, God isn't particularly interested, I think, in the way we look externally but he does care about our hearts. He does care that we give him our very, very best. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today, giving God our best. And there's a lot of different things we could discuss under this heading. The Bible talks about giving God our best in a number of different places, coming at it from different angles. But one of my favorites is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And we're gonna be there today, and you wanna get your Bibles open uh, to this today. But this is where we find what is commonly called the great commandment. And what I want you to see today is that giving God our best means that we should love God first, that we should love God most. See, as a church, over our last 75 years, I really believe that we have always been our best whenever it is that we are giving God our best. And so I just wanna ask you, as we dive into this passage of scripture, do you love God? Think about that question. Here, here's another question. Is your love for God growing? Or is it possible that your love for something else is pushing God's love, your love for God, to the side. With those questions in mind, let's read our, our text for today, Mark 12, 28 to 34, and this is how it begins. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. 
noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right, um, which must have been a huge relief to Jesus. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So let's set the context for this. As Mark 12 opens, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. He is one week away from the cross, seven days, and he will be crucified. All the religious leaders are trying to trap him. They're, they're determined to kill him. And, and so they just kind of line up, trying to ask him a question where they can catch him in saying something that will, that will get him executed. And it begins with the teachers of the law and the elders back at the end of chapter 11, but they failed. They can't trip him up. And so some Pharisees and some Herodians come and they try, but they fail. And so then the Sadducees, they step up to the plate and they take a swing. Everybody's like taking a turn. Everyone's trying to catch him. Maybe you will get him and we'll have a pretext to kill him. But every time he answers the questions perfectly. And evidently there was one guy, one of the teachers of the law who was standing on the side and, and watching all of this and he asks this simple yet ultimate question. Which commandment is the most important of all? And what he really wanted to know was, Jesus, how do I please God? It's a huge question Jesus points him to a very familiar passage of scripture for them. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. Uh, the Hebrew people called these verses the Shema, which means to hear. They recited them twice every day. Jesus pointed them to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Jesus says to this man, loving God is the greatest commandment. It is the greatest thing that you can ever do. So uh, what did you do this week? What did you do yesterday? I mean, you may have done some good things but we can do a lot of good things and we can miss the greatest thing. No matter what you get done in a day, if you don't get loving God done, you're not getting the greatest thing done. So here's the tragic thing. Some of us, just like some of them, they, they, we know this command and we can even maybe recite this command, but we're not actually doing this command. So here's my starting point today. If you are here today and if you are a Christ follower today, my assumption is that you want to love God, 
right? My assumption is you want to give God your, your best. And so I wanna help us with that by asking two questions, and they are a why and a how question. Why is loving God first the greatest commandment, and then simply how? How, how do we actually love God? So if you're taking notes, write down, why is loving God the greatest commandment? And I wanna give you three answers. There are obviously, I think, would be more, but this will kind of get us going. Three answers. First one is this. Loving God is the greatest commandment because God is most worthy. God is most worthy of our love. You see, every one of us has a a capacity to give and to receive love. Every day, we spend that capacity on something. And we we, we love a lot of things, right? You you could say, well, I I love my wife and my family, and that's good. You you could say, "I, I love my job, and there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe you could say, I love baseball. I would say, you're a wise person. Maybe you say, I I love my hobbies, or I love to go shopping. That might be good, that might be bad, I don't know. Maybe you say, I love the Raiders. That is flat out wrong. (laughs) We have capacity to love a a lot of things. And every day, we we spend that capacity. You like spend it down, and, and at the end of the day, if you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you have wasted your capacity for love on some lesser things. Friends, God is most worthy of our love, amen? He is greater, he is better, he is more glorious than everything. No one is more worthy of your love than God. I love the Old Testament scriptures that, that say, who is like you, O God? And, and then they give the answer, and the answer is always no one. You know, who is like God? And I want to read some verses that ask that question, and I want you to give the answer, okay, after we do that. So uh, let's see how you do. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you, O Lord? Answer the question, no one. Say no one. Psalm 35, 10. My whole being will exclaim, who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Who is like you, O Lord? Answer, no one. Psalm 71, 19. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God. You who have done great things, who, O God, is like you? Who, O God, is like you? No one. Psalm 89, 8. Oh, Lord, God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Who is like you, O Lord? No one, no one. See, we need to think about the infinite worthiness of God, and then we need to look around at the trivial, temporary, impermanent things that we give our affections to, We are to give God our best because God is most worthy of our best. Second, we are to love God, and this is the greatest commandment because loving God gives us the most benefit. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. And I wish I had the words to describe how much God loves you 
You know, this is the greatest discovery any human being can make to see that God loves you, that the God of the universe actually truly loves you. He loves every person in this room. You know, and if you see that, and if you get that, it's gonna change your life. And maybe some of you are thinking right now, well, you don't know me, Mike. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. God couldn't love me. And I wanna say to you, you are so wrong if you think that. Totally separate from anything you have ever done, God loves you. God of the universe, the God of the universe has set his love on you. Do you know that his gaze has never left you from the time he set his eyes on you, that you are always on his mind, that you are always on his heart. The Bible says even when we lie down, that God, his eyes are on us. He is watching us, that he loves us. He knows all our thoughts. He knows our hearts, and he loves every one of us. Maybe you're hearing this, and you're thinking, you know, Mike, I have to be honest. Um, kind of sounds a little selfish, uh, to say that we should love God because it benefits us? Like, like, shouldn't I just be focusing on others? And I wanna tell you, this is what the Bible says. When, when God offers to us the ultimate human experience, which is a love relationship with him, it is not selfish for you and I to go after that. He has made us so that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him, as as St. Augustine once said. The greatest soul satisfaction is in loving the God who loves us perfectly. And the problem is whenever we turn away from that and we pursue something that is less than that. When we do that, we always lose out. In his book, God's Passion for His Glory, John Piper writes, the pursuit of our soul's satisfaction Our joy and delight and happiness is not sin. See, what sin is, is this. Sin is pursuing happiness in a place where no lasting happiness can be found. That's sin. And so it is not wrong for you and I to to seek soul satisfaction in the one who made us, in the one who loves us, in the very one who made us so that we will never find our ultimate satisfaction in any other place but him. It's not wrong to pursue that. I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. It says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Sin is trying to quench our unquenchable soul thirst any place but in God. And so it is not a sin to pursue the satisfaction that God actually created you to desire, that the satisfaction that can only be found in him, that's why he made you. That's why he created you. More subtly, for a lot of us, sin is pursuing satisfaction in the right direction, but just doing it with lukewarm, half-hearted affections. In other words, not pursuing God with the passion he deserves. And I'm here today to remind us all that God is worthy. He is most worthy of our highest affections and our greatest love. And when we give that to him, we are the ones who benefit. We are the ones who are blessed. Amen? Do you see? Third, why is this the greatest commandment? Because this commandment is the most difficult. 
Loving what you see, what you touch, that's far easier than loving the one who we, we love by faith. And, and loving God with, with genuine, full-hearted devotion, that's never going to be easy. Let me define it this way. To love God is to delight in the beauty of all his perfections, knowing him as he truly is and delighting in him because you know him. And I'm using two key words there, the words know and delight. To know God, to love God is to know God and then to delight as a response in that knowledge of him. And I'm pointing this out because most of us tend to lean one way or the other. Some Christians are all about the delight. They wanna delight in a God but they don't really get to know him. Uh, Some Christians, well, they're all about the truth and they wanna know stuff and they wanna know about God, but they don't have the light in him. The Bible, I want you to see, is calling us to both. Some of us, we, we try to find delight in God and we just wanna feel delight in God. It's about our feelings and some of us, it's like, I'm not really that interested in learning who God is. I come to church to feel his presence. I come to church to like, have a spiritual experience. But how can you truly delight in a God that you don't truly know? And on the other hand, some of us, like, we're all about knowing. We know all about God. We've read the books. We, we've got the facts. We, we've nailed down the theology. We've memorized some verses. We're listening to sermons all the time. We know all this stuff, this truth, but there's no delight in God. And that's a tragedy, too. And here's where the power actually is. The power is in both knowing God more and delighting in the God that we are growing to know more and more and more. You need both. It's light and it's heat. It's truth that is on fire, knowing and delighting. And that is when you're loving God, when it's both. See, we always should be striving to know God, to expand our finite understanding of our infinite God. We should always want and desire to think greater and greater thoughts about him and out of that greater and greater knowledge of him to grow into greater and greater delight in him. And that balance is not an easy thing. That's why so many churches tend to go one way or the other. And we want both at Southwinds. We want to know God and we want to delight in God. And that is how we give God our best when we are doing both. So how? How do we do that? That's our second question. How do I love God? Jesus spells this out for us in verse 30 when he says we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you'll notice these four words, four ways and I want you to understand that these four ways are not separate and distinct. There's, there's overlap uh, between them. You might be able to draw some kind of a Venn diagram that captures the reality. And, and you also need to know that the Greek and, um, uh, words that are here don't exactly line up with the English words that we would use and the ideas that are there. But here's the point of all four terms. If you put them together, I'll give you four simple words that really explain what they're about. This is telling us we love God with all that we are. All that we are, or if you wanna make it real personal, all that I am. That's what these four words mean. 
And so with that in mind, I want to take some time to look at each one and kind of see the particular uh, truths that they are emphasizing. So the first one Jesus says is we are to love God. How do we do this? We do it with all of our hearts. And this is talking about my desire for God. Now, the, the Greek word for heart is the word cardia. And if you're hearing that, you'll realize it sounds like cardiac, cardiologist. And we, we tend today to hear the word heart and think primarily in terms of emotion, but that's not what the Bible is about. See, in the Bible, heart is a far more comprehensive term. Jesus is referring here to the, the core of our existence, to the source of all of our thoughts and our words and our actions. In other words, our hearts are who we are. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. You see, like nothing else, our desires demonstrate who we are. So I wanna ask you, what do you want? What are your desires? And how do you know what you want? Well, I'll give you a real practical test. What do you dream about? When you have a moment and you kind of have your thoughts wander, what, where do your daydreams actually go? How many of you know that last night no one in the whole country drew the winning ticket for the Powerball? nervous laughter. Some of you know, some of you are keeping quiet because you know, but you don't want to let on that you know about this. Well, if you don't know about this, the Powerball last night, uh, the drawing was for $1.6 billion. It was the largest in, in history. And because no one got the winning ticket, the next drawing they're estimating is going to be $1.9 billion. I've been following this. It's sermon research, okay? <laughs> Here's my question from that. If you won and you could have anything you want, what instantly comes to your mind? See, are your first thoughts about homes and cars and travel and luxuries and incredible experiences and on and on and on? Or, or have you realized that earthly wealth never really satisfies? Have you come to a place where what you desire is God more than any other thing? You know, I've just told you that loving God is the greatest command because God is most worthy. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is more glorious, that God is more beautiful, that God is better, that God is more to be desired than anyone or anything else in all the world. Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? Think about it in this way. How do you fall in love with someone? What happens? Well, when you fall in love, what happens is you decide that that person will bring joy and happiness and pleasure into your life. You fall in love with someone when they become desirable to you, right? Think of it this way. The essence of sin 
is preferring other people or other things above God, desiring them more than you desire God. The essence of loving God is desiring God more than you desire anyone or anything else. If you want to get help on loving God with your heart, the best place to go is the Psalms, I think. We need to become more like the psalmist. I'm gonna give you a couple of passages that illustrate what I'm talking about. Psalm 63, verses one through four says this, you are my God, I worship you. In my heart, I long for you as I would long for a stream in a scorching desert. I have seen your power and your glory in the place of worship. Your love means more than life to me. And I praise you. As long as I live, I will pray to you. Do you see the beating heart of the psalmist here? Psalm uh, 73, verses 25 and 26. Next verse says this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here's the question that comes from these two verses. If all you have is God, is that enough for you? Is that enough? That, that's loving God with all of your heart. And so we are to grow in our desires for God We are to desire God himself more and more, more than other things, more than other people, more than anything, because God is most worthy and we are most blessed when we do that. The second phrase is with all my soul, and this is is talking about my delight in God. Soul, so, so what do you think of when you hear the word soul? How many of you are out there honestly thinking, Aretha Franklin, queen of soul, you know. See, this word soul actually is the word that refers more primarily to our emotions. And it reminds us of this truth. God wants you to grow in your emotions for him, in your feelings toward him, in your delight in him. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He's like talking to himself. He's like trying to fire up his worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So the psalmist is talking to his soul. You ever talk to your soul? Sometimes you need to talk to yourself. He's talking to the seat of his emotions. He's, he, he doesn't want to just know things about God. He wants to be moved with passion about the things that he knows about God. He wants to be moved in his soul for God. And so this tells us that loving God with our souls means that we feel some things about God. And I just want to say, if you, if you never have feelings for God, if there are never any tears of joy over his goodness, if there is never any earnest passion for his will to be done in this dark world, if there is no sadness ever over your personal sins and failures, if there is never any delight in his word, if we never feel anything for God, then we are not loving him with our souls. You know, when some of us think about loving God, our minds go to maybe verses like John 14, 21, where 
where Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And that is true. Obedience is so important as an expression of loving God. But here's what I want to say to you, and it may surprise you. Obedience is not enough. Just doing our duty in obeying God is not all it means to love God. I'm gonna give you a picture of this, an analogy. It's it's an analogy of a wedding anniversary. My anniversary is on December 21st. And in about six weeks, Dana and I will celebrate our 37th anniversary. And so with that in mind, just suppose that when that day comes in a few weeks, I, I, I show up at the end of the day and I give Dana 37 long-stemmed roses, beautiful arrangement. And she takes them and she says, Mike, they're so beautiful, thank you. And she gives me a big hug and I get a big kiss. And then suppose I respond to her by saying, don't mention it, it's my duty. So uh, what happens next? Well, not much at my house that night. <laughs> but, but isn't the exercise of duty a noble thing? Do we not honor those that we dutifully serve? Answer, not much. Not if there's no heart in it. Some of you guys need to write this down because you're not, you're not yet quite picking up what I'm putting down, okay? But write this down. Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms, right? See, if I, if I feel no delight in, in Dana as a person, then the roses do not honor her. In fact, they belittle her because they are nothing more than a very thin covering for the fact that she does not have enough worth or enough beauty in my eyes to kindle my delight and all I can muster is just this calculated expression of marital duty. See, if I take my wife out on an anniversary and she asks me, why are you doing this? The answer that honors her most is when I say, because nothing makes me happier than to be with you. Here's what I'm saying If all we ever do is obey God out of duty, then our love for him is woefully, woefully short of what the Bible calls us to. Now, I'm not saying feelings are to rule. I know that we don't always feel the things that we would want to feel. and, And it is true that when we don't feel delight, we should still obey out of duty. But there is so much more. There is so much more. Stop settling for duty. Start kindling delight. Start loving the Lord your God with all of your soul. Delight in him. In fact, the Bible commands you to do that. You say, where? Pretty familiar verse. A lot of you know it. Maybe you've memorized it. Psalm 37, 4, but I've never, I bet you've never thought of it as a command. Here's the verse. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think most of us read that verse as a promise, and it is a promise, but it's first a command. That word delight is in the imperative mood in the Hebrew text. In other words, the word of God commands you to delight delight in God. Are you obeying that command? Take delight in him. 
Listen to this, the psalm before this, Psalm 36, verses seven to nine. The psalmist writes, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Do you see the delight? Do you hear the delight in those verses? The delight in God. That's what God wants us to kindle in him. That's what it means to love him. Third thing is we're to love God with all my mind. That's my development in knowing God. I have another question for you. Which of these four aspects of loving God do you think is the most important? Well, the answer is none of them. The answer is they're all equally important. But I ask this question for this reason. Sometimes some of us elevate one of them over the other, usually because of our personal preferences, our, our, our makeup, how we're kind of wired. And I think this especially can happen with this third uh, thing of loving God with our minds. I wonder how many of us have never, ever really given any serious thought to whether or not we love God with our minds. I wonder how many of us have ever been grieved because we have failed to love God with our minds. I, I wonder how many of us even have think that we need to work on the mental or intellectual part of loving God. I, I wonder how many of you right now are thinking, you know, Pastor Mike, I think you're mixing up two things, spirituality and thinking, and they just don't go together. I wonder how many of us think that the Christian life is just about spiritual stuff. It's not about thinking. Here's what I want you to see. If any of those kind of thoughts or any part of your thinking, then you have succumbed to an unbiblical mode of thinking that is rampant, not only in so many churches, but also across our entire culture. I don't know if you know this, but America, we have an anti-intellectual culture. People are, are kind of trained in our culture to not even to want to think and therefore, we don't value thinking. I'll give you a real simple illustration of this. And if you've never noticed this, I think you will after. But a lot of times, if you're talking to someone, and I've actually done this myself, if you ask them what they think about something, they will answer you by saying, well, I feel that. You ask them what they think, and they answer by using the word I feel. In other words, we often do this. We, we mash together the words feel and think as if they were the same thing. And actually for most of us, feeling sits on top of thinking. We don't really care so much about thinking. And, and that shows up in the fact that we define our thinking by saying we're feeling. We live in a culture where we don't want to think. And part of that is we're in an entertainment-saturated culture. We have just trained ourselves, actually discipled ourselves to want to and need to be entertained all the time. We are so easily bored. In fact, some of you can't stand it. I've only been preaching for 20 minutes or so, and you're already like, I got to look at my phone. I got to look at my phone, right? You think I don't see you, do you? Holy Spirit speaks to me all the time and tells me about some of you. No, I'm just kidding about that. But you know who you are, right? We, we just, we, we're not able to focus 
And it's really true. Our devices have made that harder and harder and harder for us. We don't know how to think. And a lot of us don't even want to think. I did some research this week on screen time and kind of looked into how much time do we spend you know, looking at our phones and our computers and our iPads and our televisions. And I, I saw a lot of different numbers, which tells me nobody really knows. And probably nobody really knows because none of us are really honest with them about how much time we spend, right? But uh, the, the results come in and they, they range from around seven hours a day up to 11 hours a day that the average American spends looking at a screen. And I, I don't I don't know the truth, but I do know that every time I share stats like this, all of you sitting out there are saying to yourself, I don't do that. I don't do that. I mean, so I don't know who these people are who spend all this time looking at screens. And it's not you, I guess. Somebody out there does, but like, can we talk? Like, can we be honest with ourselves? Whatever the number is, the number of hours every day, would you agree that all of us spend way more time looking at screens than we probably should? Would you agree with that? Everybody say amen. We all know it, right? And if you say, well, I, Pastor Mike, I only spend five hours a day on looking at screens. Well, good for you. <laughs> so proud of you. I... Um, I also was looking at something else and I couldn't really find any good stats on this, on how much time the average Christ follower spends every day reading their Bible. My guess though is it's pretty far south of six or seven hours a day, right? And even if it was an hour a day, which is pretty substantial, I mean, I'd actually agree with that. That's pretty serious time in front of the word of God, if you're looking at God's word for an hour a day and you're looking at screens for seven or eight hours a day, what does that say about where your heart is and where your, your, your emotions are and where your, your mind is? I mean, I'm just asking questions. And some of you are right now wondering, ah, I think you're kind of making a mountain out of a molehill, Mike. I mean, what's the big deal with this mind stuff? That's, that's, isn't that why we pay you, you know, for you to do this stuff? And you're the one who, who does all the heavy lifting mentally, and then you just tell us and stuff like that. I mean, isn't that what it is? And maybe you're someone who's not into reading or into study. Maybe you're more practically wired. So I, I don't think we're all supposed to be the same. And I get it. Uh, some of us do like to read more than others. And some of us are more interested in exploring intellectual issues than others. But here's the thing that we cannot escape, friends. Please listen to me now. According to the word of our Lord, whose name is Jesus Christ, amen? According to Jesus Christ, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. And if you don't like to read... My answer to you as pa your pastor is fine, but you better figure out another way to obey the word of the Lord to you. You have to figure out a way. 
Otherwise, you're not doing what God has, has called you to do. We all have a duty to love God with our minds. And why I'm hammering on this is just to raise the, the issue because I don't think we take this seriously. I don't think we, we see this as an issue for us. It's not really about us. A lot of us think it's just enough for me to come and listen to this sermon every week, and that's about it. It's kind of interesting to me over the years, sometimes I get people who, who kind of come at me with you know, what they think are Bible verses that support their anti-intellectualism. One of their favorites is Proverbs 3, 5, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And sometimes people say, ah, it says here, Mike, we're not to lean on our understanding. That must mean this intellectual stuff's not important. May I point out that it says lean not on your own understanding. It does not say use not your own understanding. Sometimes I've had people bring up 1 Corinthians 8, 1, which says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But if you read the Apostle Paul, he talks about the mind all the time, about thinking all the time. He's not rejecting knowledge. He's just rejecting a wrong attitude about it. The proper response to his warning here is humility, not ignorance. And on top of this, for every knowledgeable person who is arrogant, I can find you at least one unknowledgeable person who is defensive and also proud about their ignorance, and they just use their ignorance to cover up the fact they don't really wanna do the intellectual work. Here's the truth, you can be ignorant and arrogant at the same time. True story, a couple hundred years ago, uh, John Wesley, um, founder of the Methodist Church, a towering figure in church history. He was not only a powerful preacher, uh, effective evangelist, he's also a, a great scholar, very intelligent man. He was fluent in Latin and Greek and, and Hebrew. And one day after he spoke, a, a woman came and challenged him and said to him, God does not need your learning, John Wesley. And he responded quickly, Madam, you are exactly right. But may I remind you that he does not need your ignorance either. See, the key, the key here is that loving God with your mind is a command. It is not an option. There are no escape clauses here for people who say, I'm just not that smart or I'm just not that educated or, or I don't really like to read and study. And too many of us put heart and soul above the mind when Jesus says you are to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, all of your being. We are not to elevate one aspect over another because anytime we do, we are denigrating what God has put into us and gifted us with. See, don't let... Don't let these things become an excuse to be intellectually lazy because you don't like to think. And beside this, let me, let me point out to you, loving God with your mind is so incredibly practical. Here's what I mean. More than once as a pastor, I have been ta uh, spent time talking to someone who's going through incredible tragedy and their life is crumbling. They've been, they've been shaken like by the earthquakes of, of death or maybe disease. And as I've talked to people, sometimes I've realized that at the root, 
what they are facing is not so much that the tragedy is overwhelming, it is that they have chosen never to deepen their knowledge of God and think great thoughts of God so that they know who God is. And all they have in this moment of tragedy is this tiny little concept of God that has never been grown. And their concept of God is not sufficient to face the amazing, awesome challenges that they are running into in their lives. See, if you won't embrace with your mind the greatness of God and allow God to become great in your eyes. And it is only a matter of time, friend, before something comes into your life that is far bigger and it may overwhelm your faith. This is so very practical. Is Jesus telling you today, some of you, it's time to start loving God with your mind The fourth thing is with all my strength. This is my determination to love God. And here the picture is of physical capacity each day uh, using our strength to pursue something. And the question here is what will you spend your strength on? And there are a lot of things we can spend our, our strength on. But if you haven't done the greatest thing, which is loving God with your strength, you know, we, we, we talk about love and we define it in feelings, but the, the, the biblical words of agape in Greek, the Hebrew word is ahev, these words for love, they're not so much about feelings. They're more about an act of the will, about a decision that we make to choose to put our affections on something. And, and, and in the Bible, love does involve feelings, but it's always feelings that result from a decision Now, if you're the kind of person that's very practical and into action, then you should love this part of Jesus' command because loving God with your strength means simply this, I am doing what God wants done. This is about obedience. This is where uh, loving God with your heart and soul and mind, this is where it touches the world. You know what some of us think sometimes is, we we think sometimes because we, we feel love to God and we think sometimes because we, we think we love God that we're doing all that we need to do. But the Bible tells us that there is a deceptive enemy of doing and that deceptive enemy is listening, just listening, just hearing. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. It says, do what it says. So the question is, are, are you doing what it says? I'll real quickly give you a template that can help you uh, analyze that, measure that. It's a familiar template maybe. You've heard before three words, time, talents, and treasures. And you can ask yourself just as you pray and spend time with God, am I obeying God in the way I use my time? This shows whether or not you're loving him, how you're loving him. Am I obeying God in the way that I use my talents my abilities, the things I'm good at? Am I obeying God in terms of my treasures? In other words, am I being generous with what God has given me? Am I practicing generosity in a way that says, God, I'm giving you my best? You see, to give God our best, we have to love him with all that we are, and that means our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. You say, okay, well, I think that makes sense. Is there something else? Well, Jesus actually adds something that helps too. After he says we love God, did you notice next it says there's a second command? We are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I simply want to say this about this command. The way you love 
the people around you is a demonstration of the way you love God. You can go to 1 John and read all about this. I'm not gonna take the time to get into this, but the Bible makes it clear. If I say I love God, but I don't love people, then I'm just lying to myself. I'm just deceiving myself. I'm gonna close by giving you some insights that will help you get started. Uh, Notice that Jesus said to this scribe who asked this question, uh, he said, He said to him, when he saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You know, when we were kids, we used to say, if you're my age anyway, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, right? And um, that's true, right? Close doesn't count terms of the kingdom of God. You, you don't want to be close to the kingdom of God. You want to be in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, you need to follow me and love me. You read the Bible and, and we are told that, that we don't get into the kingdom by obeying God. We get into the kingdom by receiving God. First, uh, not first John, John one, verse 12 said, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I just wanna say to you on this day, if you've never received him, you need to receive him. You need to repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ and believe that his death on the cross has paid the penalty for your sins so that you can receive his life. If you're wanting to know how you get started in loving him, I can sum it up with a word we've mentioned a couple of times already. That's the word obedience. And that verse I mentioned earlier, John 14, 21, does does matter. It is relevant. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who, who loves me. You say, okay, I get it. I, I think I see what you're saying, Mike, but how do I do this practically? Well, really quickly, I'm gonna give you eight ideas that you can just begin building into your life. They're very simple. And the first one is this, build reminders into your life to love God. The simplest way to do that is to begin to memorize scripture. Maybe, maybe like you write a verse on a note card. You've maybe heard people talk about that. You put the verse in a place where you can see it, like on your bathroom mirror, or maybe the dashboard of your car, maybe your computer at work. And you, some of you may say, oh yeah, I've heard that before, putting verses. That's kind of dumb. Where do you get ideas like that? Well, from the Bible. Back in Deuteronomy 6, a couple verses after what we read earlier, Um, Verse seven says you're to teach these things to your children when you sit at your house. Verse eight says bind them as a sign on your hand. And and it it talks about doing things where you keep the word of God close where you can see it. And, you know, I'm not saying you're to put the verses on your hand or put them on your forehead like it says in Deuteronomy six, but maybe you wanna put some verses in those places where you have a hard time loving God. Maybe that's on your computer. Maybe that's in your car. I have a hard time loving God in my car. You can just ask my wife. Some of you do too, so don't laugh too hard. We just need to build reminders into our lives of what the greatest thing is. Second, practice the discipline of silence. You say, I don't like to be silent. That's why you need to be silent. Some of us use noise 
to mask the feelings that we're having. And we're avoiding things we need to focus on. So sometimes we need to get still and meditate on the Lord. Like Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. Third, set aside extended times for God. Times where you just meet with him and you express your love to him. Times where you turn this thing off, you put it in another room, you just get alone with God. Then number four, this is real easy. In fact, you can do this before you leave this place. Tell someone you love God. Just say somebody, to somebody, you know what? I love God. Let that begin to be part of the expression of your life. Just thinking about that, where you're, 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 you're blessing other people and you're blessing the heart of God. You're just saying, I love God. Number five, do a secret act of service. Just love someone in the name of Jesus and keep it a secret. Number six is kind of related to number four. Ask someone else if you love God. In fact, you can do four and six together. You can go up to someone after church and say, I love God. Do you love God? That gives them a chance to do number four. And they can say, I love God. But just, that's a great question to ask people because really that's what following Jesus is all about. You know that, right? A lot of people think Christianity is you gotta keep certain rules, you gotta live a certain way. No, at the heart of our faith is simply this. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? And then number seven, pray and tell God you love him. Just if you have a hard time saying that, just say, God, I love you. You can ask him to increase your love. You, you can ask him to, to grow your heart and your mind for this. And then number eight, worship with abandon. And you can also practice this before you leave this place. You know, whenever we're worshiping together, just really sing. I mean, sing loud. You know, make somebody mad because you're singing so loud. If they don't like it and they look at you, you can say, hey, I'm obeying God. I'm making a joyful noise to the Lord. And just, just let that out. Express your love to God through worship. I mean, this list could go on and on and on, but we're gonna stop here because we're gonna call ourselves now in response to God's word to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you ready to do that, Southwinds? Let's do that together. Let's love God. He is worthy of our love and we will be the ones who are blessed as we love him. This is the word of the Lord for us today. All God's people say, amen. amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we wanna say that we love you and Lord, we do love you. We also know, Lord, that too often our loves for you fall short. And so, God, we ask you to please forgive us for loving other people and, and other things more than you. Lord, teach us where we need to change. Teach us how to love you first, God, that we can, we can just give you our best. And Father, we know that you gave us your best in your son, Jesus Christ. And your gift of Jesus to us as we, we share in the Lord's Supper together. So we just ask you, Father, to help us, strengthen us to be able to thank you for giving us your best, and strengthen us, Father, to respond by giving you our best. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. 
And all God's people said, amen. Our ushers.